This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mythos Goes Disney! Robert Fortune! Spy Movies 101! And The Ripley Scrolls! Last April, the secret masters at Atlas Games kickstarted a new edition of Unknown Armies. It's the legendary occult RPG where horribly broken people conspire to fix the world. Now, the books are at press and digital rewards are starting to land with Kickstarter backers. But not everyone was conscious in April for this dramatic shift in the invisible clergy. Maybe you were asleep, unaware of the occult underground. Maybe you were just doing something else in April. It matters not! You can still pre-order everything offered and unlocked during the Kickstarter and get it all as soon as it's available. From the deluxe edition, whose three volumes are wrapped with a slipcase that unfolds into a GM screen... To PDF, EPUB, and Moby digital editions, not to mention three all-new soundtrack cycles composed especially for this project. Pre-order at atlas-games.com backslash UA3 pre-order. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's good to be awake. Okay, time for a quick preamble hunt before we begin the full proceedings. And this hut, as it has been in the previous weeks, is just a quick reminder that there are groovy Ken and Robin plastic miniatures available through the Flat Plastic Miniatures 2 Kickstarter. You may be getting this after the Kickstarter has closed, but still go over, type in Flat Plastic Miniatures 2, and uh, maybe they've got a backer kit going or something, because everybody does that these days. And you can get your groovy sort of anime-looking slash noirish slash Cthulhu hunting looking Ken and Robin figures along with uh, some familiar uh, vampire and Cthulhu head pals. So they're uh, really groovy plastic transparencies with cool color art on them and you can see both the front and the back. And they're, uh, and you can see through the little stand so you can read the terrain below them. Yes. And so uh, it's a very nifty treat if you're interested in both miniatures and Ken and Robin. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But in this gaming hut, it is not Peter Frampton who is coming alive. It is a different fellow with larger ears and a squeakier, can you imagine it, voice, because here we are responding to a listener backer request, Patreon backer Gerald Sears, asks us, what if the Disney Corp was an agent of the mythos? Ha <laughs> ha, we say, nervously tugging our collars at the thought of a billion trillion dollar company listening to this, and was manipulating children's stories and fairy tales to their own ends. Or perhaps, thank you, Gerald, he continues, would they be a force for good, staving back the darkness by hiding the truth under yet more veils? Uh, excellent uh, jumping-off point from Gerald Sears. Robin, do you have an immediate response to the good people at Disney, in fact, being the bad people at Disney? Well, gosh, I don't know. Uh, so I struggled to find a way into this, so maybe I'll start by talking about the uh, fruitless ways in, and then <laughs> we can see if you got in, and then I'll I'll see if my 
a final way of providing a satisfying answer to this uh, is still uh, salient. So initially I thought that uh, because my headspace is in a uh, 30s, 40s L.A. sort of area and Walt Disney gets a little reference in Cthulhu Confidential in the L.A. section because in that timeline he is still in the old original Disney studio before he gets the big fancy one and he and his animators are working on something called Snow White which if it if it doesn't hit big it's going to bust the studio and and ruin everyone. Oh no. No no. Uh so I thought perhaps a, a way in would be through Disney because you know he's a character in that era which I yeah. uh, have been thinking about and love so much and there really wasn't a way I I thought first of all maybe the we could tie it into in sort of a James Ellroy kind of way into like the 1941 uh Disney animator strike but that didn't turn out to be as clear cut and, and sinister as it is uh, sometimes portrayed, or uh, Go his, testimony, <laughs> his testimony before uh, HUAC, which again is sort of a uh, that his experience of uh, you know having these employees who he had a paternalistic view of, you know having the gumption to form a union and demand uh, more equal conditions to one another that that sort of turned him hard to the right, and so he went up before HUAC. But again, that's it, it doesn't it's sort of less than than it really appears. So. I wasn't quite sure where to go with that. There's also the idea that uh, the Disney Corporation is basically acquiring intellectual property ownership of our mythology and our childhoods. And maybe that was the direction to go in. But again, how do you get from there to the mythos? Ken, what were your first thoughts when you saw this question? Uh, my first thoughts when I saw the question was the notion that you're sort of putting the cart before the horse when you say agent of the mythos manipulating fairy tales to their own ends. And first of all, if one is a proper mythosian, is that the word I'm looking for? The fairy tales have been like all human lore actually refer back to some horrific Lovecraftian truth. Like Snow White, you mentioned Snow White has obviously been put into her um, uh, coma, not by, uh, an evil witch giving her an apple, but by the great race of Yith, right, has stolen her brain away, and they're they're back into the um uh, into the Triassic. And so when Prince Charming comes on, he you know puts his mouth down on her, and uh, you know the Yithian floods back, and the whole thing was a was a a, a game to to get Prince Charming where the Yithians could grab him or right. something our, like our that, myth right? Of- Jonah uh, and the whale, which turns into Pinocchio and the whale. Right. You know, that's somebody's encounter with, with Abazoth and having their uh, brain melt. Yes. And uh, Dumbo is a did, – did Dumbo begin as a, as, as a novel? Was it a thing yeah, before? Yeah, I think it's a kid story. Kid story, yeah. It could either be like, oh, this is a, a, a Dreamlands story where you've got this uh, necessity to fly away and that D- Dumbo is a Shantak in the original version. Or so it's he, just He's a, not a humble Buopoth? He could be a humble Buopoth, but, you know, do you be, do people really tell stories about humble Buopoths? Uh, other Buopoths, too. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's a Buopoth <laughs> a of, story. The, the Maybe Buopoth Dumbo is their culture. Gossip. He's their Alexander the Great. He's yeah. their King Arthur. Yeah. Someday Dumbo will come back and lead us, say the Buapods. But um, so the notion that the mythos is perverting these things that are innocent presupposes that there are things that are innocent, which in a Lovecraftian universe, there are not things that are innocent, certainly not things that are handed down after centuries and centuries of of the past. So that my first thought was we sort of got this 
the, the other way around. And so then I read the second half of his question where he says, no, they're hiding the truth under yet more veils. They're doing the thing that Charles Perot did and that then Grimm did and that then Andrew Lang did. And they look at the fairy tale original and they say, oh, that's, that's not good. And they, and they carve off the bits that are really, really horrible and leave a slightly denuded new version out for people to tell stories about. Cinderella stepsisters are not cutting off their toe in the fifties Disney animated version. Right. They're not doing that, nor is the uh, apple sticking in Snow White's throat and choking her to death the way that it does in the original. That's not happening. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can say, Oh, if, if Disney is knows the truth and is covering it up, then you can say, all right, Either they're doing it for good reasons because they don't want, you know, the mythos to get out. You know, uh, Walt, those late nights drawing the same thing over and over and over, had a vision of the king in yellow or something and or Dale off. And he looked into the dimension. He's like, I must pre- protect America's children from this dimension. And uh, then was cleverly putting, uh, you know, sigils into all of the all of the Disney's or. It's a thing where the old stories are sort of forcing their way through the D- Disney Corporation, and the more you stare at them, then the more you accidentally fall victim to them. And that the original fairy tales somewhere, there's a, a, a panacotic manuscript of fairy tales back there that that is uh, bubbling away, or Shubnigaroth is behind it because of the sort of fertile and quotidian nature of these stories that they're her seedlings moving through people's minds. So the notion that Disney is covering up or manipulating the mythos, I think begins being more productive than that. The stories are good. And Disney is mythosifying them. If you get me right. Right. If, if I was going to play with this idea, I would not have Walt uh, or his uh, modern day successors be conscious uh, protectors of humanity from the mythos because that's too many good guys yep. for, for a Lovecraft and world. very rich good guys, which is certainly not what you want. Yes. Rich, powerful, influential, own a giant corporation. Yes. They can send you out on missions. Although that's- I do like the idea of, of, hey, smart guy, if it's the 21st century, how come the Necronomicon's not been uploaded to Scribd? And it's like, because the Disney lawyers come and kill you. That's why. <laughs> that kind of a good answer frankly yes the, the disney bot. no one believes the nsa will do it but they'll believe disney would do it yes they have a retroactive copyright on the necronomicon because they uh, because they it, it's in the 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 extra reel of song of the south that they hid yeah they, they <laughs> redesigned all the characters and now right they, that would explain all the adorable cthulhu's out there sterling holloway's voice as azathoth makes it copyrightable but anyway just before while i was taking my pre-podcast nap it finally came to me uh because our Former uh, colleague and still pal uh, Lou Prosperi uh, has written a book called The Imagineering Pyramid, Using Disney Theme Park Design Principles to Develop and Promote Your Creative Ideas. And so he uh, has studied the way that Disney Park Imagineers do things. And uh, one of the things that they do at the park is that they use techniques developed in set design and animation in order to make the park on a subliminal level tell a story in a more effective way. So, for example, they use foreshortening techniques that they learned doing drawings and map paintings and applied them to the actual architecture. So the angles of the architecture in a Disney theme park are different than they appear. There's a psychoneurological uh, disconnect that you don't notice unless you see things really well. And, of course, we all know what happens when you create non-Euclidean angles. Yeah, it's bad news. You have your spot for the Hounds of Tindalos to come through, and the Hounds of Tindalos can come into the Disney theme park 
And then they can get to work saying, oh, wait, here's Pinocchio as well. Well, we know, as good hounds of Tintalos, that Pinocchio's whale is actually Azazoth. And we know that Dumbo is a Shantak or, you know, the evilest of the, of the Buopoth or, or what have you. And so the hounds, who in this version are sort of a little more uh, protagonist or at least actively intelligent antagonist in their uh, narrative role, begin to take all of the things that Walt carefully buried under his veneer of uh, 40s and 50s American optimism and capitalism, and then they can start uh, doing stuff through the theme parks. And I think that also gives us an interesting hook for the adventure because then, you know, in order to stop these manifestations where all of a sudden all of these, this Disney merchandise, which floods the entire uh, culture throughout the world, if select items of Disney merchandise are beginning to have uh, psychoactive mythos effects on people, it's time to, you know, find out what's going on. And ultimately your big final battle is with the Hounds of Tindalos uh, at, uh, you know, it has to be the original Disney World in Disneyland. Sorry, the original Disneyland yeah. in Anaheim because we're all about LA. Also, the notion that you can take things that have become corrupted by the hounds, right? The hounds go through and they're like, oh, the, you know, Dumbo is a Shantak. And then if you buy your toy Dumbo and you put him down in the right g- imagineering geometrical position as compared to your Pinocchio whale and compared to all the other bits from the original Disneyland. And maybe you have to go back and get, and suddenly there's an occult war on eBay as people are trying to buy, you know, the, um, uh, what, whatever was there before they put, it's a small world down and covered up the original 1950s architecture with the new 1960s architecture. And then, and so you're like, Oh, I have to put this and recreate the original Disney world geometry and the way that Disney laid it out was that it was a, a a sort of a trap and a and a Klein bottle or a Mobius strip. And so the hounds would pour out in and they would be caught up in these imaginary angles and sort of race around, never quite being able to get out because the angles themselves make a giant circle, which, of course, is how you imprison a hound. But when they put in It's a Small World, they ruined Walt's original sacred geometry and... That is the doorway through which the hounds have been able to come is this hole in the original geometry. And you have, and you can't go into Anaheim with a bulldozer and start knocking that down. You have to reconstruct the original geometry out of Disney branded items that have the same geometry because obviously Walt is very, you know, a quality control and everything has to look exactly right. So when you buy your souvenir Dumbo, it's the same souvenir Dumbo. So that Shantak is mapped everywhere in the world. So in theory, Anyone in the world could rebuild the Disney sacred geometry with enough Disney gear. And that's why there's a secret war between, you know, the heirs of Randolph Carter or the heirs of Henry Armitage who are trying desperately to rebuild this, this fantasy geometry and the wars against them by, by the various cultists who are like, if we can destroy this last, whatever it is, uh, I don't even know what it would be. Snow White's castle or something, then we can, we can prevent that, that gate from ever having been recreated. Cause if the gate exists anywhere, it exists everywhere because it maps into the ultimate geometry of the world, not just Anaheim, right? I mean, Walt isn't protecting just Anaheim. He's protecting America and therefore by accident, the rest of the world. Now I'm already hearing uh, fingers hovering over keyboards prepared to type the words, I'm surprised you didn't mention, mm-hmm. but I'm going to forestall at least the main example of that because we got to talk about the Haunted Mansion. Yeah. 
the Hounds of Tindalos, they're at the Haunted Mansion. That's where they are, not at Cinderella's Castle. And uh, they have the original, they've, as they've been rooting around through uh, uh, time and alternate realities, they found the original plans, uh, concepts for the first Haunted Mansion uh, design. Uh, there was an original set of designs that were uh, later discarded where grotesque figures from history had a much more prominent role. There's still some of those changing portraits still sort of evoke uh, historical figures, but the original plan was to have, like, Richard III, I think, and Jack the Ripper, definitely, and a lot of these other, uh, you know, historical atrocity figures portrayed in the cartoon uh, gothic confines of the Haunted Mansion. Well, so guess who's been let out? All of those. So right. Jack the Ripper is, uh, you know, he's, he's patrolling uh, either the theme park, or maybe he's going out and sensing the psychic resonance of... Uh, uh, Charles Manson and uh, maybe going and visiting the prison to bust him out. So uh, you've got a whole array of, uh, you know, history's uh, worst villains. History's have greatest monsters. Exactly. There you go. Uh, so that's how the Haunted Mansion uh, figures into Richard it, Nixon uh, from the Hall of Presidents leading. Them. <laughs> yes. And Woodrow Wilson teaming up. There you go. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the other thing that uh, occurs to me is that maybe the hounds, it's not even the hounds, that it was uh, a portrait, one of the evil figures, someone said, oh, let's do a portrait of uh, Joseph Kerwin or of Abdul Alhazred. And because they recreated the angles too well, the Kerwin force that was dissipated by Merlin and by uh, Dr. Willett in the, in the original story is able to reconfigure itself around that portrait. And that's why it's taken this long. It, it didn't blow up in 1955 or whenever it blew up now is because Joseph Kerwin has been sort of living in this hidden portrait that when they said, well, we're not putting all those ancient figures and he's able to send out these, these sort of quasi animatronic versions of these other evil portraits. Cause he's the only one who has sacred geometry properly in his portrait. And that's your bad guy right. is, is not necessarily the hounds and the hounds could be working for him as a geometrical villain. Right. Right. And, and Disney artists and designers, of course, are, if nothing else, uh, peripatetic searchers out of reference material. Absolutely. So maybe they find some old paintings by uh, uh, Pickman. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's how it gets. Oh, here, this ghoul, that's, this is a really great ghoul. Let's do an, a new ghoul figure designed on, on this old painting that I found that is kind of freaking me out and I'm not sleeping very well, but I don't know. Whoever, why. whoever did the, um, uh, the, uh, the Disney, uh, uh, headless horseman was like, Oh, we'll do a bunch of new England folklore. Here's some ghouls from this, uh, great out of copyright source art we found. And oh, what a, what a, what a great, like, little Disney short subject that would be tucked away somewhere in the vault. The subway attack or the, or the little ghoul story. And maybe there's like one cute animatronic ghoul or not animatronic, but sort of a, a, he's, he's, his human half is, is sort of still strong. And so he's the good ghoul and then it's surrounded by all these evil, horrible ghouls. That'd be actually kind of a good Disney story by itself, I think. Well, now that we're giving Disney ideas, I think it's time to uh, head to our next hut and submit the invoice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Hey, 
kids? Want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. The creaking of timber, the slosh of the ocean waves, the rattle of the wind in the sails tell us that we've entered the history hut, but not just only old regular history hut, but a nautical history hut. And look over there, we've got some uh, kind of miniature greenhouse kind of things, and we've got or we've got tea plants in them, because guess what? We've gone into the tea smuggling business at the behest of Patreon backer Steve Sick, who asks, The adventurer Robert Fortune was a 19th century industrial spy for the British East India Company. In addition to breaking China's monopoly on tea, which I think is a, a nice way of saying tea smuggling, uh, what do you suggest could be used for a game that would interest players. So, as the timeline suggests, uh, Robert Fortune, in about 1848, he's a, a Scottish merchant, and he... And he's uh, a Scottish merchant before and since as well. Yes. But in 1848, he does the thing that he is famous for, which he is he smuggles tea plants out of China. China, of course, understandably on their part, wants to maintain a monopoly on uh, this bioproduct. And uh, they don't have uh, DNA patenting to do it, so they just got to make sure that uh, nobody gets any tea out of the country. And the thing is, it's difficult to keep the plants alive. And so using a box called a, a Wardian case, uh, because it was invented by a guy named Ward, he takes the tea to India and sets up the tea business in India in the province of Darjeeling, hence uh, the Darjeeling tea that maybe some of you are drinking even as we speak. So, Ken, uh, is there, are there any other details about Robert Fortune to fill in before we try and make some stuff up to make this even more exciting <laughs> than uh, botany smuggling? Well, I mean, my first notion is that uh, in the history of mankind, if you are the East India Company, who, who at whose behest Robert Fortune was in there stealing the tea, um, although as uh, Robert Fortune, I should point out, would have said, there's no patents on tea, I'm just making it available to the world, I'm doing a... No global service. And one, it's hard to argue with him given how delightful tea is. But, uh, the notion that we're going, we're going to have to hire a guy to go into China and find tea. And since they keep it secret, he has to be able to disguise himself as a Chinese person. So let's pick a six foot redheaded beaky nosed Scotsman. <laughs> yeah. That's the guy we want to go in and pretend to be a Chinese Mandarin, but nothing loath. That's exactly what Robert Fortune does. He disguises himself as a Mandarin. He's got a couple of servants 
from uh, one of the coastal cities, a guy named Wang is, I guess, the, the sort of the main uh, dude, the, the Robin to his Batman, if Batman and Robin went around stealing tea instead of fighting criminals. Um, and uh, Wang would go in and, and uh, say, oh, my august lord, the Mandarin, who is too august for you to talk to in Chinese, because he's all <laughs> fancy, wants to come and look at your tea-making business. So everyone explain it very, very slowly. And uh, don't be confused if he takes notes in a weird language that you won't recognize. Because he's a Mandarin. And so uh, that, that worked apparently because either the Chinese didn't care because it wasn't their tea or they just figured that if a guy wants to dress up like a Mandarin, he's probably capable of having them killed anyway. So they should do it. Or maybe they bought it. Maybe it was just that good a disguise, but he goes into, um, uh, I think he makes two different, uh, journeys to two different regions of China to figure out, you know, at the time they thought green tea and black tea were different teas. Because that's what Linnaeus had thought, and Linnaeus was great. And when they went into China, uh, Robert Fortune says, "Oh no, it's just that the black tea is is left to sort of uh, cure a little longer on the on the windowsill and, and blacken and shrivel up, and they're the same tea." And then there was a lot of pushback from botanists in Europe who said, "Go and get more tea and prove it." And so he had to keep doing that over and over again. And the first time that he sends the tea back to India, some jerk in Calcutta opens those Wardian cases to find out if he's smuggling. I don't know what back into India and they ruin it and fungus gets in and they kill all of his tea plants. And that's why he has to go back a second time as well. That would be uh, infuriating if you've uh, it would be. done your job and then some customs inspector wrecks everything. Yeah. But he, the, uh, the most important thing to bring back was not the plants because one assumes those are relatively easy to get even without dressing up, but the soup to nuts knowledge of how to make tea. And, and uh, apparently it's hard. You, you don't just, pull leaves off a plant and infuse them and you're done. There's a great deal of fermenting and cooking and processing and shoving back and forth. Um, it's sort of like stir frying that you have to do to get the tea liquor out of the tea leaves so that the tea leaves are all concentrated the way that you want them to. I don't understand it myself. You would, I would have to go to China disguised as a Mandarin to ask or look it up. Um, but, uh, but he also, in addition to other things, uh, studied silkworms, which is, I, I guess that was a, Secret that had already gotten out 1,300 years before, but, you know, good hustle. Right. But Japan had been closed yes. to uh, until 1853, so presumably he got in there right after uh, Commodore Perry opened things up with his uh, his guns and his ship. And uh, so he would have been one of the first people, Westerners, fully allowed back into Japan because of, prior to that, the contact had been very limited for uh, most of the Tokugawa period. And he introduced a whole bunch of other Eastern plants back to uh, Europe, including various peonies and roses and stuff. So uh, these days we go, oh, no, invasive species. And back then they go, oh, yes, exciting new plant products. So uh, his work on behalf of, of plants and mankind is certainly uh, seems less brutal than a lot of things that were done during the yeah. era of the, if you, the spice trade. If you trade, things where, that Westerners did in China in the 1840s and 50s, sneaking tea out is is well down the list. Oh, and speaking of uh, the beneficence of mankind, the other thing that he discovered is that the tea that the Chinese made for export to Great Britain was adulterated with gypsum and cyanide because cyanide in the, in the form of Prussian blue, which is the way that they used it, is bright blue and gypsum is bright yellow. And they knew that the British people wanted their tea to be really green and blue and yellow make green. So let's mix that stuff up and dump it into the tea. And, uh, it would take, it would take a, a, a great deal of, of, of drinking 
tea after all of that process to, to kill a British person, but it took much less compounding two toxic elements to kill Chinese tea workers. So right there by sort of documenting that as a unnecessary part of the process, he probably saved the lives of a zillion Indian coolies who would otherwise have killed themselves making tea for the British in, in, in a extra, uh, killy way, as opposed to probably just being worked to death or starved by the previously discussed hated British. So the, the kernel of a thing that makes this more adventury, where we then begin to make things up, is that he is a master of disguise. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a master of entering unfamiliar cultures and passing himself off as a member of that culture, or at least uh, getting people in, in another culture to talk to him. So I guess we can have him, uh, in addition to these things, going around having uh, Pope-style 19th century adventures uh, throughout the uh, South Asia and uh, and East Asia as well. So do we start off with a, a secret reason, uh, a secret other thing that he discovers when he's in China and finding the tea secrets? Or do we meet him after he's been to uh, China and Japan and now the secret part of his career begins? Well, he's he goes all over the place. So you, depending on how you want to do it, he's obviously, in addition to looking for tea. He was looking for roses in for real world. And he found some kinds of roses that turned out to not be able to be grown in Britain because Britain and China are very different, but still good, good try. But he would have been hunting down the fevered black lotus, right? Or the liao, the plant that the liao drug comes from. So uh, weird, terrible plants. And maybe he goes into Chocho country in French Indochina at the very beginnings of that uh, period where the French gunboats are coming in and there comes our buddy Robert Fortune in on the next gunboat, ready to find the Black Lotus. I, I do want to sort of give a shout out to these Wardian cases because, first of all, they're awesome looking. They're these little miniature greenhouses that you can carry around. And second of all, they let you, of course, ship plants around the world in Victorian technology. And so if, if you are a proper evil cult or a proper a uh, Western investigator of evil cults or a proper Western evil cult that just wants to, you know, globalize. These Wardian cases are just the thing. Also, as a Lovecraftian, it's just fun to say Wardian case over and over yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and get people um, uh, thinking about entirely other things than creepy plants. You can also tie into this the good old uh, Boris Karloff movie, Die Monster Die, which is a color out of space riff by the director of Dun Witch Horror, Daniel Haller. And he also has a magic greenhouse where he keeps his radioactive meteor. And so you can connect uh, Nahum Whitley of Die Monster Die up with Wardian cases and weird greenhouses. And so maybe the Wardian, there is a Wardian greenhouse that specifically uh, either has different kinds of polarized uh, glass in it or has a different geometric arrangement of the lenses that focuses, you know, stellar or cosmic radiation into the greenhouse so that inside the Wardian greenhouse, the stars are right in a way that they're not in the rest of the world. So that's a fun thing. And we don't want the only antagonist that he uh, deals with to be uh, uh, Chinese or Japanese. So, But of course, we've got a great set of running villains in the form of the hated Dutch. Yes. Uh, because they, by comparison to uh, English spice traders and colonists, are ferociously brutal. So mm-hmm. they will be something like, there's four tiny islands where this particular spice grows, we will f- protect and fortify island number uh, one, and we'll just burn to the ground and kill everyone on all of the other three islands to make sure that... It's cheaper than building four forts. Yes, exactly. And so you can have 
you know, there's a, a race, there's a discovery of this black lotus powder, which both Fortune and his Dutch counterpart, you know, Von Lennertz or whatever his name is, uh, both think is, is a possible new spice uh, that you might want to put in your in your puddings and, and so forth or as a, a meat rub. But of course, what it really is, is a hallucinogenic black lotus powder. And if Fortune gets it, of course, he will make sure that it does not go onto the market. And if uh, Von Lennertz gets it, he will make sure that uh, it's distributed into uh, the English food chain and everyone will get uh, you know, that ergot hallucination times a thousand. And so you can uh, have, uh, you know, the, these cool running bad guys who are not just uh, the, the non-Western characters, which I right. think is important. You want to tread carefully in, you don't want to make the colonists the, the heroes. Well, you certainly, whether or not individual colonists may or may not be the heroes, you don't want the foreigners all to be bad guys because that yeah. is both unrealistic and problematic, as they say on Tumblr. Indeed, yes. Um, so I think we've uh, sort of laid out what a, a basic concept for a Robert Fortune-style campaign would be, and I think we can uh, get in our boats, uh, put some plants in our uh, ward cases. Ooh, I, f- I found our, 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 our Dutchman. He's the undead Henrik Adrian Van Reed Tot Drakenstein. Ah. And the mere <laughs> fact that he died in 1691 should not prevent us from making him a bad person. He's been kept alive by the immortality spice that he's found. Yeah, he found a, the immortality spice, and he he's probably a bad person. I don't know anything about him, except he has the world's most awesome name. But he gets uh, kicked out of the Dutch East India Company, which is probably not for being too nice. Right. Right. Well, there you go. And he has to fake his own death periodically. Mm-hmm. And uh, Oh, holy... And his, 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 his death is even mysterious. Oh, thank you, Wikipedia. You're the greatest. <laughs> uh, some authors suggest that he was poisoned by Dutch East India Company employees. Oh, yeah. And he's buried in Surat in the presence only of his daughter. Oh, you're a death-faking son of a gun. There you go. Henrik Van Reed Tot Drakenstein, if that is your real name. Well, it's a good thing that I didn't quite close out the segment, but now... Now, undead Dutchman, as always, signal the end of a segment. Indeed, yes. historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. 
The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Oli Toivonen. Adam Alexander. Mark Giles. Paul Stefko. And Pedro Garcia. The whir of the projector passing through the sprockets, the smell of popcorn, and the what is that under our feet lead us once more down the aisle and into the cinema hut. And in the cinema hut, beloved Patreon backer Theron Bretz has asked us to tangle with Spy Movies 101. And I love our 101 segments. I love them almost as much as I love our 201 segments. I think that they are great. So good for you, Theron Bretz. And Robin, do you want to begin our Spy Movies 101? Do we want to, how do we want to do this? Yeah, we'll go back and forth as, as we usually do. And uh, I think we'll probably be even more in sync on this one than with film noir and Western, just because there's a, a smaller corpus of Yeah, of films there's a smaller on. corpus and I think a more restricted canon. So I'm going to start off with the historical granddaddy of everything, and that is the 1928 silent film Spione, or Spion. Uh, our German listeners can tell me. That's directed by Fritz Lang. It's a crazy spy thriller, and basically it lays down the basic plot elements in any cinematic, kind of more uh, fantastical, less real side of this, the spy canon. And so it's the, uh, it's the original uh, blossom from which all of the other uh, sprouts come. And if you're looking for Fritz Lang movies, may I also suggest Ministry of Fear, which... While not maybe a 101 is certainly well worth hunting down once you're in that Fritz Lang mood and it has sound, which is nice. Yes. So w- what would you uh, start with? I would start with the probably the best spy movie ever made, which is Sidney Pollock's 1975 classic, The Three Days of the Condor, starring Robert Redford as the titular Condor who has three very bad days. And it is one of those cases where the novel was bad and the movie was vastly better, as is so often the case. There are elements of it now that are very of the 1970s. I I warn our more sensitive viewers. But by and large, it is a terrific example of sort of that taut mentality that the best spy movies have of not knowing who to trust, not knowing which way to turn, but being able to fall back on your spy training to let you be sort of the the iconic figure, right? You, you A spy movie can be certainly about someone who's just crushed under the pressure of being a spy, or it can be about someone who uh, uh, wigs out or, or who just isn't very good and screws things up. But I think the iconic spy, just like the iconic cowboy or the iconic private eye, is a, a creature of just not only their own belief system, but also their their training and their instincts. And R- Robert Redford, despite being a bookish analyst, proves to have the training and the instincts necessary to be a proper spy. And Pollock's direction is just, well, it's Sidney Pollock, and it's Sidney Pollock, I think, at pretty much the height of his powers. So that would be my call. And I guess the companion piece to that, that would be your sort of post-Watergate paranoia uh, era of uh, the spy genre. Uh, I had the parallax view in my uh, slot there. Yeah, Although, I sort of went back and forth on the parallax view because I see that as a conspiracy movie. The the hero is not a spy. No one is really a spy. There's this sort of you know evil national security establishment, but they're not spying. They're just sort of 
running America in a crummy way, right? Uh, okay, so that's, that's a definitional question of what constitutes a, a spy film, because uh, as we're about to discover, the spy film is a subject matter, not a genre per se. Right. Uh, and there can, there can be action spy movies. Uh, we're going to get to some romantic comedy spy movies, or at least I am. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was a little surprised. Uh, that your uh, best spy movie of all time is not The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, 1965, Martin Ritt, uh, which is the best cinematic Le Carre movie, stars uh, Richard Burton. It's in Le Carre's classic Cold War uh, mode and uh, is certainly, in my mind, the best realistic spy film of all time. It is It is a great, it is, it is a great movie, and it was probably around number nine on my all-time top ten Top 10 of 101, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and I, and it's no, great. No, let's and, not get our top 10s mixed up with our 101. Right. And I do, and I do love the, the fact that Rit has to film Richard Burton, of all people, as a ugly, broken person. Uh, and, and, uh, Rit apparently started every shot by focusing on Richard Burton's mole. <laughs> And then built all the shots around that so that you would always be saying, oh, goodness, a physical deformity on Richard Burton. I must right. go lie down. Well, it would be easier to do that later. But 65 Richard Burton, it was a challenge. Yes. No, it was it, it got easier, certainly. But when Martin Ritt did it, it was it was very hard. Um, Yeah, that's another that's a great one. Absolutely. I think, though, that Thomas Alfredson's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a better Le Carre movie than Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And it's also, providentially, a really good 101 sort of introduction to the classic mole hunt genre in which you don't know who's the traitor. And that, of course, goes, you know, way back to um, uh, to uh, some of the early, you know, 40s spy movies, number 19, Rue Madeline or whatever it is, the one that was done right after the war um, and is actually got problems, but is still good to watch. And it's not a 101. But Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a 101 because it's Le Carre. It's strong Le Carre, which is not all Le Carre by any stretch of the imagination. And it's Gary Oldman doing a really great job as, as George Smiley. And since you can't allow TV shows in the Spy Movies 101, we must pass over Alec Guinness with a wistful sigh. And uh, Gary Oldman does um, not embarrass. We're, we're going to say, I, I think we're going to stipulate, even though it's Cinema Hut, not TV Hut, we're both going to mention the 1979 miniseries directed by John Irvin because Guinness is the, I think the quintessential George Smiley. Absolutely. And yeah. the miniseries format gives room for the uh, whole investigative level of that story to unfold where it necessarily has to be telescoped uh, for the for feature film movie. Yeah. So uh, I really like the movie as well. I have it on my list, but I also have the miniseries because it's our podcast, Ken. It is our podcast. You make a good point about it being our podcast. Yes. And, oh, God, yes, you should absolutely watch the miniseries of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy as well, because Alec Guinness, um, in a lifetime of great performances, it would be hard to pick out one that is the greatest, but that is the greatest. Yes. So I, I guess I sort of mentioned through in the miniseries. Should I go to the next film? Why don't you go to the next one on yours? Okay. So uh, when you're uh, developing a one-on-one list of spy movies, the question is not whether to include an Alfred Hitchcock film. It is which. But which one? And so uh, you could go for North by Northwest, a sort of fun chase thriller. There's a whole bunch of other choices. There's uh, Saboteur and Sabotage, and that's not, that's not even the whole list. But uh, I'm going to point to Notorious oh, uh, from 1946. Okay with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, because uh, I think that is still the best film that captures the difficulty and challenge of so many real-life uh, spies, especially female spies, who've had to sort of 
offer themselves up as romantic objects and put themselves in uh, uh, sexual danger in order to uh, gather information on the oh-so-terrible, in this case, oh-so-charming enemy uh, played by Claude Rains. Uh, so it's it's top-notch Hitchcock and the uh, level of romantic drama and tension between uh, Grant and Bergman it just sort of sizzles on the screen. And uh, so uh, you've got to choose one Hitchcock, and that's mine. My Hitchcock, and I likewise had to make a choice, was... 1935's The 39 Steps, starring Robert Donat. It is, again, as is traditional with spy movies, it is loosely based, a glancing blow off the John Buchan novel. Someone read the the, uh, the title of the novel. And then moved on. Although, as uh, has been pointed out, Hitchcock actually fixes the only flaw in the novel's plot, which is the crazy coincidence that John Hannay is on the run with the secret of the 39 steps and the house he stumbles into at random in Scotland is the house owned by the master villain. So it is a bit of a gimme, John Buchan, just because you were governor general of Canada. We're not going to forgive you that one. Well, I forgive it to him because he was literally inventing the genre. So you get it. You get a free one when you invent the genre. But that said, that said, this is a great movie, and the version of what is the 39 steps in this movie is actually better also than Buchan's version, because, you know, in, in Buchan's version, it's 39 steps, and now I'm already done. It's not the good old Robert Ludlum, you know, what is the Rhineman Exchange? Oh, goodness, I don't know what it could be. Uh, you, your crazy enigmatic title that becomes clear, and so you, the viewer, are also solving a little mystery, just like the... um uh Poor Robert Donat is, and the the bit with uh, Mr. Memory as sort of the, the 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 literal embodiment of the guilty secret that is the whole core of of spying. It's just a great movie. Uh, I agree with Orson Welles, who said that it was a masterpiece, and I agree with Orson Welles on many things, and certainly on what are film masterpieces. He and I are are you can't get a, a ruler between us. Speaking of Orson Welles, next on my list is The Third Man. There you go, Carol Reed. Again, a movie not about a spy. Yes, Robin. there's some dispute as to whether this is a film noir or a spy film. Uh, I would class it in the uh, spy slash uh, international intrigue uh, category. Uh, this is sort of the beginning of the post-war malaise in uh, Europe after in the in the wake of the uh, war, and has one of the all-time uh, sinister MacGuffin characters. You know, it's uh, another good movie with no spies in it. Jaws. That's another good movie with no spies in it. He's a spy, right? <laughs> Who? Um, uh, Harry Lime. Harry Lime? No, he's a he's a he's a criminal. Harry, Harry Lime is a is a is a black marketeer. He's just a weasel. But aren't there aren't there spies helping uh, Joseph Cotton track him down? Uh, there are there's the, sure the occupation authorities are not helping him track them down. They're sort of like penning him in and forcing him to track them down. They're they're military police. They're not spies. They they own Vienna. They're not spies any more than the FBI are spies. Well, there you go. So it depends on the tightness of your definition. I'm sure your next film has a tighter definition. Well, it has a spy in it, that's for sure. Because it is John Frankenheimer's The Manchurian Candidate from 1962, which has a sleeper agent, at least one, and in fact, more than one, because the paranoia of who to trust is flipped on its head as we follow Frank Sinatra trying to figure out whether or not Lawrence Harvey is actually a Soviet sleeper agent. And oh my God, the reveal at the end of this one is so bananas and so over the top that if we hadn't literally just gone through the 2016 election, I would say <laughs> not a prayer, but talk about movies that will remain relevant for all time. Apparently the original 1962, except no substitutions Manchurian candidate. First of all, it's just a masterpiece of a film. I and mean, Frankenheimer is great, but he's really strong. 
in um, uh, the Manchurian Candidate. And over and above the sort of literal insanity of the plot, there are just these great human performances playing these larger-than-life characters. One of the great all-time evil moms played yeah, by Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury back in the day. And, uh, yeah, just a, a fantastic, fantastic film on every level and well worth seeing. And also, I think, a part of your Spy Movie 101 because it is the sleeper agent story, which is one that, uh, for some reason, you don't get as many spy movies about as maybe you ought to. So next up, I think we need to start looking at the... Uh, sort of a crazier, more outlandish side of the spy genre. And Certainly that's, uh, can. J- uh, James Bond. Yes. And for this purpose, uh, I'm going to pick not necessarily my favorite Bond film, but the Bond film that most evokes the real world spying scene. And so okay. that would be fr- From Russia with Love, ah. 1963 by Terrence Young. A good choice. Uh, with that. And the shockingly brutal uh, violence of this one also evokes that. So even though you've got Lada Lenya with her uh, spike shoes, uh, most of it is kind of um, more like uh, Fleming's novels. And and again, in the day, the Russians were spiking people with poison all the time. They may or may not have been shoes, but they were it's, a spiking it's the bunch. shoes that are just a little outre. But mm-hmm. in general, yeah. this is the most grounded of the Connery Bonds, which, of course, is the... Uh, the proper Bonds. The, yeah. Uh, w- what would your Bond film be? My Bond film, same cr- same criteria, must be Connery, must be actually spying, is Thunderball, which, although the underwater action is less action-y than one might like now in the present, back in 1965, it was very impressive. It's also Terrence Young, who was probably one of the better Bond directors ever, I would say. So oh, yeah, for just the choreography of that train fight with Robert Shaw. Yeah, just, uh, yeah uh, From Russia with Love was the other one on my list. I went back and forth as to which one to pick, and I picked Thunderball because Spectre is in it. And Spectre, I think the sort of notion of the freelance bad guy is another element of spy films, and it grows ever more as Hollywood becomes more and more sensitive to the foreign market and does not want to anger anyone by assuming that certain nations might be inimical to American interests. But uh, also, there it's just a it's a great movie, and it's got all the Bond stuff without any of the stupid Bond stuff, and Felix Leiter is in it in a big role, which is nice to see the CIA guy come in. So, yeah, I, I, I think Thunderball is my Bond choice. Right. And and as we know, especially, Felix Leiter is a code name that you get. Uh, as a, right. Yeah. Even more so than Bond. Exactly. Uh, so next up, I think it's time to look at a, a wartime slash resistance uh, spy film. And so that would be Army of Shadows from 1969 by Jean-Pierre Melville, which uh, is this uh, brilliantly uh, sort of stoic TikTok procedural film of uh, being in the French resistance and the... Uh, sort of efficient brutality that is sometimes uh, required of you uh, when you are immersed in that world where there's uh, no way out but victory, and uh, sometimes you have to do some really bad stuff for some good reasons. Yeah, like all Melville films are great. I mean, Melville is, well, maybe not all, but everyone I've seen has been great, and uh, this is a great one. it, It was not on my list, mostly because the Resistance film is a kissing cousin to the spy genre, and because there's not quite it, it, it sort of turn turn i think in the history of the genre it sort of feeds on itself and doesn't feed into the rest of the genre as much but it's certainly worth seeing and, and melville is is magnificent in the uh same decade going back to that annus moribilis of spy movies 1965 the other one that i would put in is sydney fury's the ipcrest file starring michael kane as harry palmer 
Uh, it is the first and by far the best of the Harry Palmer series based on a Len Dayton novel. It was conceived of as the anti-Bond, so it's good for our 101 as Bond is changing the way spy movies will be made. The Ipcrest file was one of the first movies to come and say, well, we're not going to make it that way. So I, I think the Ipcrest file is well worth seeing. Fury does a, a, a good job directing and a better job cinematographing. I mean, every shot is just really gorgeous in the Ipcrest file. So hunt it down. And also Michael Caine giving a serious performance as opposed to a self-parodic performance is worth checking out as well. Yes. And uh, perhaps the uh, best glasses frames in the genre history. (laughs) Certainly in the decade. Yes. Oddly, uh, we're both obviously going to get to this one, but speaking of John Frankenheimer, 1998's uh, Ronin. Oh, Uh, yes. So uh, this is your uh, European spycraft plus uh, car chases uh, film. So it gives you that sort of... uh, uh, post uh, Cold War, or perhaps we should say now interregnum in the co- Cold War. <laughs> yes, inter Cold War. Yes, uh, spy scene uh, with the mixture of uh, uh, criminality and spying. Yeah, and just another terrific movie by Frankenheimer, who is um, you know a gift that apparently just keeps on giving, uh, director wise. And you can't mention Ronin, I think, without mentioning the other anti Bond, which is. Uh, the entire Bourne trilogy. If you're picking one, I would say 2007, Paul Greengrass, the Bourne ultimatum, but they are very much of a fabric. And unlike most trilogies, there's no weak one. So I recommend watching them all, but I think ultimatum just because the bravura way that it nestles itself into its own mythology. And for that great tour de force uh, scene in Waterloo station is, is probably the best of the three, but it's, it's not like any of all of them don't have, magnificent set pieces and they were all a rebuke to the sort of bloated uh invisible car era of james bond that well it, it knocked bond onto a it turned out unproductive but at the time we were optimistic new path and it also sort of rebuilt the entire thriller architecture it's it's thrillers 101 as well as spy films 101 the born trilogy specifically the born ultimatum robin did you have a different born movie on your list or were you just counting on me to do I, it? I knew you would go for the born so i, I yeah. didn't even bother to type it but of course i agree um yes the next up i would go for this is the most recent one on my list uh sicario by dennis villeneuve uh this gives you your uh narco uh espionage uh film and uh your uh it's sort of a uh, both on a sort of a tactile uh, atmospheric level and in the sort of uh, uh nether realm of what uh, the uh, CIA is up to uh, with the drug war, and its score is just incredible. So I, I think it's the best spy film of the uh, 2000s, unless the Born. I guess the Born trilogy was in the 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, 2007. But let me retract that. Yes, it, it's a darn good movie and a darn good spy movie, absolutely. I will sort of take us onto the sidetrack, which is a crucial part of the genre, of the funny spy movie or the parodic spy movie of which there have been many and almost all of them have been terrible. So you don't have to count them down. Austin powers is great fun. Yeah. Yeah. But the funniest and best is OSS 117 Cairo nest of spies starring the lovely and talented Jean Desjardins as the titular OSS 117. Yes. You, you may know him from the artist, right? Uh, directed by Michelle has It's 2006. I watched it knowing nothing about the character. Apparently, OSS 17 is the legendary original of, um, uh, of, of the, he's sort of the French James Bond. And this is a, a parody of a French property. And it is done with such love and such beauty. 
and such attention to production design, you, you, you will be shaking your head continuously remembering, oh, this is not actually a lost frame from Dr. No or from Goldfinger, the way that, uh, Dujardin just sort of inhabits the Sean Connery spy while also being a big stupid goof, just like, uh, Austin Powers. And it's hilarious. It's really, really good. It's certainly the best funny spy movie by a long, 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 long chalk. And uh, the sequel is not as good, but nothing really could be in in the funny spy subgenre. So if you're looking for funny spies, yes, there's Our, Our Man Flint, blah, blah, blah. Those are good just sort of as a bath into the era. But uh, oh my gosh, is OSS 117 great? Um, and I'm going to, uh, on the comedy tip, but not on the spoof tip, I would then, uh, as, as I foreshadowed, it's time to mention the romantic comedy spy films. And uh, the uh, pinnacle of that would be 1963's Charade by Stanley yes. Donen uh, with Cary Grant movie. yet again and Audrey Hepburn. Uh, she's sort of, it sort of combines the, the wrong man who uh, uh, gets involved in a spy thing. In this case, the wrong man is uh, the delightful Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant is the uh, a spy trying to protect her from the uh, very evil other spies, including uh, Walter Matthau in a great uh, one of his early heavy roles, and uh, also James Coburn is kind of scary in that as well. And the and the theme song is magnificent. Yes, Henry Mancini. The music is so great, Henry Mancini. Um, that is the best Hitchcock movie not made by Hitchcock, I think. Again, by universal acclaim. Yes. Uh, and speaking of Walter Matthau and uh, the romantic comedy spy thriller, I would also point to Hopscotch from 1980, uh, directed by Ronald Neem, where uh, the rumpled Matthau is now uh, the uh, romantic lead in a sort of a Spencer Tracy uh, way, and Glenda Jackson is uh, uh, playing opposite him, and something that could only happen in the 70s, or in this case, in 1980. 1980 is still in the 70s, yeah. as we all know. I, I I liked Hopscotch well enough, but I would in no wise put it in the 101 or in the top 10, frankly. But as Marx predicted, what began as tragedy has ended in farce, and we must now regretfully shut down the projector and move into another hut. The skies are dim, always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you. It's time to once more wend our way up the creaky stairs to wave to the uh, glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and head on into the familiar parlor of the consulting occultist. And this time, uh, Patreon backer Paul Tevis uh, has a consultation that he would like us to make regarding the Ripley scrolls. Uh, these refer to, but are not made by, an English alchemist named 
uh, George Ripley, who uh, died in 1490 and maybe was born around 1415. He did write a book called The Compound of Alchemy, uh, which is uh, in the period where alchemy didn't have any E's in it, had an extra Y, or The Twelve Gates Leading to the Discovery of the Philosopher's Stone. So I guess maybe we should start off by talking about uh, the namesake of the scrolls, George Ripley. What else do we need to know about him? We know that he was a churchman. He um, uh, was from Yorkshire, which is uh, lovely that you don't have everyone being from London all the time. He goes off to Italy and studies alchemy, and Pope Innocent makes him uh, master of ceremonies and domestic prelate and uh, possibly a knight of Malta. Um, he is called a Chevalier de Heliopolis in a later text, and no one can find that he might have been knighted by the King of England. But if the Pope makes you a knight of the Order of St. John, then by gosh, you're a knight. Um, and so he uh, contributed all of his money, which he apparently had a lot of, to the Knights of uh, St. John, to the Knights of Malta, the Order Hospitaller, as we like to know them, um, to help them fight off the, the Ottomans. And uh, an alchemist with money is so unusual that people think, Maybe he did figure out the Philosopher's Stone because alchemists are normally crazy poor people with mercury poisoning. And here's a rich guy who's giving money to the Knights of Malta. So that's that is uh, that and the fact that he wrote the first uh, poem, I guess, in English about alchemy, which is um, uh, the Cantalina Ripley. Uh, and he was quite the guy. Right. And so is it the case that it is this poem that appears in the scrolls, hence the name, or is it other commentary about Ripley that appears in the scrolls, hence the name? I don't, I don't, I did not actually go and hunt down the Cantalea Ripleyani, but I am told by those who have reason to know that the imagery on the Ripley scrolls refers back to Ripley's writings and the bits of poetry that are quoted, which is more squibs than whole um, uh, cantos or whatnot, uh, are uh, quotations from the compound of alchemy, which is also in verse as it transpires. And uh, that the verse has been sort of pulled out of that and put into books by Elias Ashmole, among other sort of encyclopedists of alchemy. And so it's probably that someone may not have even been consulting an original Ripley book when they did the scrolls, but were consulting a general book on alchemy, such as those assembled by Elias Ashmole and put the scrolls together from that. Right. And so it's part of the, the long tradition in, in alchemy and in occult studies in general, where you find a prestigious name to uh, slap on your, uh, in this case, uh, illuminated manuscript in order to uh, give it cachet. So uh, that's where George Ripley connects to these scrolls. There's 23 different copies of the Ripley scrolls, and they're held in various collections and libraries. The, the Bodleian has, what, five of them, something like that? I can tell you the answer to that, because there is a great, great thing online that lists every damn Ripley scroll and all of the various weird differences in them. And I can tell you right now that the Bodleian has one, two, three, four, five. Yes. There we go. And that make, must make them very happy because even the British Library only has seven. So uh, what are we looking at physically in terms of what a... Uh, they're all slightly different from one another. They're, they're handmade, mm -hmm. uh, obviously. This is, predates the... And there group. are two groups of Ripley scrolls. There's what they call Group A, which are mostly the same scroll copied out in various ways with slightly different drawings and group B, which are a bunch of radically different or not radically different. They don't not have Ripley on them, but they're all, you know, different from group A enough. And so that's sort of, it's like group A and miscellaneous and miscellaneous is group B. 
but most of them are group A. Right. And the diagrams, which are what you mostly see when you do an image search online, are all of these really cool uh, poster-worthy designs of here's the, you know, here's the big alchemical dragon that's bleeding onto the globe and uh, the droplets of blood uh, enter these three different globes, which I'll presumably tell you something uh, deep about uh, either the philosophy or physical practice of alchemy and probably both. So what else do people want to need to know in order to sort of picture these? And you can absolutely find, I mean, a lot of them have been digitized and put up on the web, so you can do your own image search and find lovely Ripley scrolls to give to the players and let them hunt around. The earliest ones, I believe, that we know about uh, have been very tentatively dated to the 16th century. Almost all of them are actually 17th century ones. Right. So definitely Ripley himself is a long ago brand name. They're, 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 uh, the, the earliest, earliest one is 50 years after he died or 60 years after he died. Uh, and then they get much farther after he died after that. And, and they're long. They're, they're super long. They're, they're like 18 feet long or 20 feet long. And, uh, they're, they're about, uh, two feet wide. So that you, that you, you, if you were stealing one, you would have to roll it up and jam it under your coat. And God knows what that does to the paint. It probably nothing good. So, right. and so while you're doing an alchemical working, you don't have to then stop and figure out where in the scroll your instructions are. You have to very carefully study things beforehand before right. you start summoning up sylphs or whatever it is that you're doing. And, and you don't want to leave, leave it lying around where the chemicals are because obviously it's, they're all made out of paper uh, backed uh, by linen by and large. So they would catch fire if you left them near the Alembic. So don't do that. So what strikes you about the imagery in the scrolls? Well, I mean, the first thing is that uh, it is a pretty complete set of alchemical in imagery. If you're looking for a sort of soup to nuts, bunch of alchemical images, each set of scrolls has its own set of imagery. So you can't really give a, a general sense of, of what they are. There's a, a walled city that always sort of catches my eye in most of them. That is uh, also, I suspect, an alchemical beaker of some kind. But so the notion of a city as an alchemical Athenor is kind of neat. Uh, there's plenty of dragons if you're looking for dragons um, and weird, uh, what I want to say, astronomical imagery. Uh, it, I suppose it could be astrological, but it's mostly suns and moons, not planets. So that's uh, that's great fun. So, you know, not to be not I guess not to be um, too obvious. The, the Dungeons and the Dragons catch my eye when I look at a, at a Ripley scroll. Um, they're, they're great, but there's all manner of, of weird stuff going on. And like most alchemical imagery, the more you look at it, the weirder it gets where you suddenly notice, oh, that guy's stabbing that lady. Why would he do that? That seems unkind. Um, it, and is it, is it a magical stabbing or is it just, you know, some, some monk getting his misogyny out? So, uh, there's all sorts of things that you could do if you make this a, a handout for the players. Uh, there's probably almost sort of too much stuff to present the players with. So you might want to just give them, you know, one image from a section of the scroll. You know, you have a torn out bit of something and then you, later you find out it's been torn out from a Ripley scroll and the significance of it in the adventure might be, you know, what is actually uh, on this sheet that you've been given or what the scroll now says when you take this sheet out of it. What uh, does the removal of this sheet uh, do? Is this a particular diagram? Is this a ward? that you have uh, has been removed from the scroll and now the scroll is active or is it something that needs to be put into the scroll uh, in order to uh, perform uh, some working that you don't want someone to work so that's why uh, the sorcerer's minions are, are coming after you to uh, to get it away from you. In at least two of the versions a possible figure of George Ripley is drawn in with a horseshoe on a staff so 
it's it's as though he's saying, okay, I have to sort of close this off with a magic horseshoe or else the magic will will get out. Right. So, yeah, that that as far as I'm concerned, story checks out, Robin. Right. Uh, so is that how you would, uh, set about using the Ripley scrolls as a, a MacGuffin in your game? If you're, if you're MacGuffining it, I think the fact that you've got, um, the 12 gates or, you know, however many different gates you decide, like Ripley says 12, so why not 12, that they have to pass through sort of sets you up for 12 inciting incidents. If you drag them out, bang, 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 that could get a little samey, samey. So maybe you have the bad guys who have solved three of the gates. And so you have to get their solution away as opposed to pass through the gates or whatever. Um, I would sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to sort of not necessarily even make the game inherently about alchemy, but have these symbologies keep coming up and that every time you sort of resolve one of these crises, maybe you go up in a level in an F20 type game or you uh, achieve some other in-game uh, ability that makes you a better uh, 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 player character. Uh, and so that way you're moving through an alchemical progression as you play and getting sort of the spirit of the Ripley scrolls a little bit. Um, I think you can also just plain old use them as a MacGuffin. It's like the 24th Ripley scroll has been discovered and it's a new type and it, we, we don't know what it says, but, uh, suddenly someone's giving a lot of money to the Knights of Malta again. And, uh, maybe that's, uh, you know, uh, they figured out how to use them or maybe you have to do like in, uh, the book, the ninth gate, which is not the 12 gates. They have to sort of take all the bits of all the Ripley scrolls. And there's a message across all of them that has been put together by maybe an immortal copyist or by people who, um, were working in a, in a secret tradition, a secret society that made all of these Ripley scrolls over the 150 or so years that they did. You can also treat them as a prophecy of what's going to happen to the players over the course of a series. So, uh, there's the, uh, they find themselves in a walled city. And they need to, uh, you know, pull out the scroll and look at the details in order to that now, okay, well, the monk stabbing the woman, we got to find out if there's been any uh, murders by monks in town and track that down. And that'll help us figure out what's going on here or, you know, or, oh, well, I guess we're fighting a dragon. Uh, I guess we got to figure out what those three circles are that are caused by the dragon blood. And uh, maybe there's something you know, that we really have to know before we start stabbing this dragon. And, and you can decide, for example, that an individual symbol that's on the, that's on the scrolls means something in your game, even if it doesn't mean anything to uh, Ripley or, or John D or whoever. Um, so you can say, Oh, the, the black sun that's in the Ripley scrolls is actually an eclipse that's going to happen. And that everything is, is leading towards this eclipse or that uh, the black sun represents, um, you know, the, the fourth Reich and that they have, uh, Himmler's pet alchemists had solved the Ripley scrolls that there was a, a lost Ripley scroll that wound up in Germany and that that's, you know, what they were using. And so that's where they got the black sun. Or you can say that the toad that shows up in some of them is actually Sathagwa and it's a mythos Ripley scroll. And you can figure out that, you know, only the only by invoking Sathagwa can the alchemist truly make gold. And that's the message of the Ripley scrolls. So y there's enough stuff in there that anything that's in your game already you can figure out how it's already in the Ripley scroll. So I recommend finding one of these digitized Ripley scrolls and looking at it with an eye towards bringing stuff in that's already in your game and saying, oh, look at that. It's a king with wings for shoulders. We already had a, a fallen angel in my game. That's who's in that. And that's who it's referring to. And how do I explain why my fallen angel character is showing up in a 1600s Ripley scroll? Because that can be kind of fun where you've got a thing from the uh, uh, early modern past or centuries ago that is suddenly relevant to the things that are actually happening at the table, as opposed to, you know, because in a, in a way saying, Oh, you've discovered the 12 gates of alchemy is not 
that different from, oh, your uncle has left you a haunted house. And you're like, why was I never in- interested in this before? Because I didn't have the campaign then. So a great uh, opportunity that you have with a giant jamble of symbolism that makes no sense is to impose your own meaning and have the symbolism already to refer to stuff that's already going on in your game, as opposed to sort of starting ab initio and saying, as occult detectives, you've now discovered that the Ripley scrolls are important. Another thing you could do with them, if you have a uh, player who's playing an alchemist or a uh, sorcerer, uh, and it's uh, one of those players, uh, as is often the case, if they're playing that kind of character who likes doing a lot of uh, sort of between sessions uh, uh, blue booking, is you can say, here's the here's the Ripley scrolls. This is how you advance in magic between sessions. You tell me uh, what illustration you uh, spent the uh, weeks that passed between adventures uh, studying what conclusions you drew from it, and I'll tell you what spell you have now as, a, as an account of that. Or you could sell me on what spell you maybe have now as part of that. So it can be part of the uh, kind of a lure of magical research for that subset of players who are really into that. Yeah, using the Ripley Scroll as the um, uh, sort of the self-study kit. I guess that's sort of how Jung would have used it, right? Because Jung was, of course, uh, crazy uh, impressed with the Ripley Scrolls. Uh, so you can sort of go through and say, hey, players... Here are the Ripley scrolls. Why don't you figure out what the archetypes mean and tell me the GM? And guess what? You're probably right. Yes, you could. Uh, you can have a player go uh, through a process of uh, Jungian individuation, where you uh, learn who you really are, and rather than learning magic, you might, uh, you know, it might awaken your uh, superpowers as you become, uh, you know, more and more of the psychopomp uh, archetype until finally you uh, uh, have an apotheosis and uh, fade away into the collective unconscious. And I guess the last thing you can do is that you can figure out some famous person, Jung being one example. Uh, there's a, a Ripley scroll in Cambridge that, uh, you know, maybe uh, might've been seen by Kim Philby or someone. You can figure out something in someone else's life that is explicable by exposure to the Ripley scrolls. And then you're solving the mystery of that person via the Ripley scrolls. That seems like sort of a lot of steps, but it can really pay off because the players will start noticing parallels uh, one, if, if all you do is assert that there is uh, evidence of a connection between, you know, the, the Ripley scrolls and, uh, uh, and and Shakespeare or something, players will immediately begin saying, oh, this is just like in that allusion in uh, the Phoenix and the, and, the, and the Turtle or whatever. And yeah, that's what I meant to say. And there you go. You're off to the races. Right. Well, if that's the last thing you can do with the Ripley scrolls, this must be the end of uh, this episode. So let's uh, wave goodbye to everybody and we'll be back next week stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games pelgrane press ask arc dream dark tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james semple audio editing by rob borges get your priority question asking access by supporting our patreon at patreon.com backslash canon robin Join such classically animated worthies as Stephen Hammond, Todd W. Olson, Bill Sundwall, Fred Kish, and John Kingdom. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>